After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi everyone, mind rolling. I'm back. It's Raghu with old time buddy David Nickturn. David, glad to see you. Good to see you, Raghu. Yeah, it's my chance. To, you know, it's our chance to hang out because we we were just talking about David's going off for seven weeks to the Orient, and I'm going off for a few weeks, and then we're going to meet back again in Maui. David, as many of you know, is a man, a, a Renaissance man. Uh, but he is known for producing Krishnadas records and playing beautiful guitar with him in his kirtan concerts. He is also known for uh, writing a terrific book, which we discussed last year, David and I, Awakening from the Daydream, which we're going to talk about. Not the book in particular, but it'll it'll have stuff from the book because I'm interested in a couple of things that certainly uh-huh. relate and uh, and of course, uh, David has been a music producer as well, and worked with a host of incredible people. So I'm always glad to hang out with you, Dave. Yeah, we have to figure out a way to hang out when we're not doing this too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Have so deep, go for the deep hang. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I. I've become. Uh, very interested in a couple of topics. Uh, I briefly mentioned them to you when we spoke about doing this, but um, our mutual friend, Sharon Salzberg, when she was asked by our mutual friend, Duncan Trussell, and I've done a bunch of these podcasts around this subject, so people are probably getting bored of me uh, Uh telling this story, but not everybody knows it. And uh, he said, well, what do you do with your practice, Sharon? You know... (laughs) And you almost can do Duncan now, right? You can almost yeah, do it. Right. Yeah. What are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. So she said, I get up, I sit down on the mat, and I get real, Duncan. And he went. Oh, my God. Exactly. He went, what? What? He was hoping for, you know, I sit and I follow my breath and blah, blah, blah. So that became a theme for us that turned Ooh. into uh-huh. getting real. Okay. Wow. What are the all the aspects of of getting real, of course, the, you know, being able to uh, see the difference between actual experience and projected experience of the story we tell ourselves, the mm-hmm. the narratives that, that go on in our head when we sit on that mat. And so I have been talking to various of our friends about this to illuminate what it is that we can be aware of when, uh, in terms of quote unquote, getting real. So one of the things that struck me that there's one teacher beyond a teacher that I love more than anybody, uh, especially around this concept. Although you know he would never talk about it in these terms, but he is the realest teacher uh, that I have ever. I unfortunately never met him, and I'm talking about Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche. I don't know. Uh-huh. Did you ever meet Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Oh, see, I I feel bereft that I, even though I have met in, you know, some of the greatest beings in the last century, but uh, I have, I just love him. And oh, so, so you got to tell me, what was that like? Right well, off the to, bat. To, just to contextualize it first. Yeah. Uh, 
Kent, Dilgo Kansi Rinpoche was one of my teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche's main teachers. Um, and uh, there's a lot to tell about that relationship. Um, it's a very significant relationship in terms of my community, the Shambhala community. So I would say Dilgo Kansi Rinpoche um, it would be like a grandfather to my community. He's like our father's father, our teacher's teacher. Hmm. And at a certain point after Trungpa Rinpoche had established, um, you know, his uh, Dharma teaching and, and the community in the West, I think it would be, you know, in the mid seventies, he invited uh, Kansai Rinpoche to come over. So we hosted his, his several visits of him coming here. And I was quite actively involved with, with, with those. Uh, so I spent time with him um, as part of the hosting crew and, you know, as an attendant and kind of driving him around. And in fact, had some, you know, some great stories to tell about uh, about him, but in general, a much bigger picture than me, he was an important uh, lineage holder for our our sangha, for our community, and for others too. So he was kind of uh, we our nickname for him was Mr. Universe because <laughs> he was so big. First of all, he was physically huge. He was six foot seven, mm. and you know, which is very unusual for Tibetan. He, he was like the size of he would walk around. He was older, you know, and he would walk around with one monk under each arm like as crutches. And it was quite a sight. He was just a massive, uh, physically, he had a, a really unusual physicality. Mm. Um, and then I would say, you know, he was coming as a, uh, for those people who study closely with a Dharma teacher of some kind, if you're studying intimately directly with one teacher, that teacher is going to really have a strong communication. And when they bring in other teachers, uh, they're, in a, in a way, there to kind of help support that activity. To to uh, you know to give another image of what it looks like to have done a lot of practice and have kind of some level of realization. So uh, so Kansai Rinpoche's presence was almost completely, if not really completely, one hundred percent benevolent. Hmm. It was like you know a sense of uh, oh, and and I'll, I'll I'll tell you one story from Trungpa Rinpoche. Trungpa Rinpoche was raised in a Kagyu monastery, in, which he was the head of in, in Tibet. And he had his root teachers, and he studied really hard, like the Tulkus do from the age of two. You know, he was really, really very strictly trained. And at a certain point, he began to feel like, well, I don't know if this stuff is real or not. Talk about keeping it real. Hmm. Like, is this real? And then Kensei Rinpoche came to his monastery, uh, and he said, I knew it was all real at that point. I knew what this was all about. Just when he looked at him, which is when he saw him, which many people had that experience of Kensei Rinpoche and the 16th Karmapa both. Uh, this is like why you, why Buddha, Buddhism, Buddhism has survived for 2,500 years because it actually can produce Buddhas. Those guys were Buddhas. Yeah. So that's, that's mm. kind of, um, and then, you know, every, there was a lot of delight, a lot of lightness of being. I think you saw what lightness, incredible lightness of being looks like. There's tremendous compassion. He just was, you know, in the same way that you guys talk about Maharaji, you know, being very affectionate to people and very open hearted and, you know, kind of grabbing people. And, you know, he was just amazingly, uh, I mean, I, I could cry right now just thinking about him. It's, mm. it, I think of him as like one of my main sort of uh, images that I would hold in difficult times like these are. Mm, wow. Yeah. So, well, get, yeah, I didn't, a, know, little, I didn't know you were going to be asking me about that. That's funny. No. That's interesting. Mm. Well, I wouldn't mind a little story, Dave, of just you and he and, and driving around anything for me. Okay. So, uh, so I was his driver in Northern California when he visited uh, and he stayed at his house in, in Berkeley. Um, and this is kind of a unusual story, but I'm pretty sure it's true. I mean, sometimes it's so dreamlike around these kind of teachers, but I'm telling you something that, you know, is at an ordinary level of what happened. We decided to take a drive into uh, Marin County, hmm. which if those of you know San Francisco, you go across the, the Golden Gate Bridge, right? And then you're into up into uh, Marin County, which is like um, Stinson Beach and uh, further up and, and, and um, uh, 
you know, Bolinas, those, those kind of little beach towns. They're adorable little beach towns, and they still are to this day. And somehow we took him there with, uh, with his translator, who was also a, another Rinpoche, and a couple of other, one or two other people. But we basically just took a drive up there. Yeah. Now we're walking out on Stinson Beach, which is a place I haunted sometimes because pr- probably you remember I had, a, I had that band with Jerry Garcia, and so we'd go up there and rehearse and stuff like that. And um, there we were just out on the beach. And this is documented in the film Brilliant Moon, which is about Ken Rinpoche. Have you seen that? Yeah. Well, I'm in it. Oh. And we're on Stinson Beach. If you go back to the scene that's on Stinson Beach, that's me with long hair and a beard back then. <laughs> and we're just walking down the beach with this giant Tibetan gleaming, beautiful, radiant human being. And some a kid just comes running up to us, you know, and this is just, I guess maybe this is a sign of the times or something like that. These kind of things happen somehow magically. And he saw, well, this is a Lama. This is an important Lama. He could just saw, saw that. And through the translator, he said um, that he had had a teacher uh, uh, and he had a protection cord and those red cords that you wear around mm-hmm. your neck. And uh, he'd come to feel the teacher was not good you know, like not authentic, not wholesome, not not benevolent for him. And he had a kind of negative feeling about it. But he was superstitious about taking the protection cord off. He didn't want to just kind of discard it. And Kensei Rinpoche just, I mean, they just took him totally in stride and said, okay, just give me the cord. And I don't know if I'm going to get through this story, Raku. I mean, there's so much emotion tied up oh. into it. He just took... He gave this giant hand the cord and Kensei just blew on the cord like that. And he handed it back to him and said, no, go throw it in the ocean. And the kid went halfway out into the ocean, threw the cord in and came back. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just cleared that for him. And somehow there was enough confidence. There was not like, who was it? It was none of that stuff. He just felt it. He cleared it. It all happened the way it was supposed to. And there was a feeling you see if you look at that uh, that piece in Brilliant Moon, you can see it's a happy bunch of people at the beach. And I'm wearing a suit. We were we wore suits in those days, you know, to do the right the right thing. And um, on the way over to we stopped on the other side of the view, the view, the lookout on Golden Gate Bridge. And he just this is very hard to talk about because these are the sort of subtlest aspects of these teachers is not what they say, but how, how, how they, how they be. And he just uh, took a kind of open pose against the backdrop of, of the bay there and the bridge. And uh, he just showed me the quality of uh, everything you and I are, have looking for our whole lives. Mm. It just displayed it. And it's, it's not something you can explain. Uh, but, you know, I mean, sometimes we call it the nature of mind in the Buddhist tradition, but he, powerful transmission. It wasn't saying or doing anything. Yeah. Mm. So that was just one, one event. But in general, there was this tremendous feeling of benevolence and kind of heart and space, heart mm. and space. Mm which uh, I have gotten just from that uh, film, from stuff I've seen on, on the yeah. net that yeah. people put out, and uh, his pictures. I mean, his, everybody, you got to go just just put into Google, Kensi, uh, Dilgo Kensi, D-I-L-G-O-K-H-Y-E-N-T-S-A-T-S-E, Rinpoche, and just check it out, because just one picture can do it. I mean, you can see it. Uh, you, you know, we have good reference points, both of us, yeah, uh, but uh, I don't think uh, anybody would miss it. Yeah, it's called liberation upon seeing, in the mm. traditional mm. terms. Yeah. It, and Karmapa had that too. It's just you, yep. look at them and you go, okay, I get it. And that's what happened to Trungpa Rinpoche. He said, "Oh, this is what all these texts are about." Yeah, I get yeah. it. He's nine years old. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I get it. So I want to give everybody. Uh, so I have this wonderful book of his, uh, and I'll just put it. It's called. Uh, the Show heart, the picture. Hold the picture up. The heart treasure of the enlightened ones. There you go, folks. There he is. 
and uh, it's I keep this by it's by my uh, getting real mat Sharon <laughs> talked about and it's always there and I just thumb any place in it but um, just to he takes no it's so through all of this that David has uh, told you the, told us these wonderful stories and you get the feeling of this incredibly compassionate loving magnanimous spacious individual and but he took no prisoners in terms of his teachings i mean he was very very blunt about it all uh it's in this degenerate age that we've reached the peak of illusion he says <laughs> People have long forgotten the purity of the golden age. They disregard their future lives and are preoccupied only by immediate gratification, unreliable and capricious. They bury the Dharma under a great heap of harmful and negative actions. The world and beings change direction every moment like stalks of wheat swaying to and fro in the wind. <laughs> And what was true this morning is untrue by this evening. That's <laughs> some timely. Un untimely rain, snow, hail, heat, and cold upset the natural course of the seasons. Seeing all this, we must understand there is no point in being excessively glad when something good happens to us, <laughs> as it may well turn into the opposite at any time. And we must understand that there is no point in being too depressed by bad circumstances, as our difficulties are minute compared to those endured by countless beings in the lower realms, just as a, mag a magician cannot be fooled by illusions that he knows he created himself. A bodhisattva who has realized the emptiness of all phenomena and who recognizes all worldly pursuits to be illusory, even if he lives as a householder, is not affected by negative emotions or ego clinging. Understanding the void nature of ordinary worldly activities, he is neither attracted to them nor afraid of them. He neither hopes for success nor fears failure. And he has such confidence in his study, contemplation, and practice that whatever he does brings him closer and closer to complete liberation. However, these days, such understanding is rare. Yeah. Wow. It's so great, huh? Oh, well, man. and it's worth, you know, Raghu, I teach a 100-hour meditation teacher training program. Hmm. Teaching it. Connecticut here. I've taught it in Wilmington, New York. Uh, I'm teaching it in Tokyo and I'm going to be teaching it in LA this year, starting in June. Hmm. And I, I say like, look, this is a hundred hours of training. So you can go off and sort of join the mindfulness revolution and make a positive contribution. But how many of you would come if you had to fulfill my teacher's teacher's criteria, which was 15 years in a cave, <laughs> which is what Kensei Rinpoche spent. 15 years mm. in a cave. Mm. So, and then he re-entered, um, they call it entering the action. He re-entered the flow and he came to Bhutan and he apparently would just sit under a tree. He was a refugee, he would sit under a tree in Bhutan and people would just come around and he was just teach anybody. And then the queen of Bhutan sort of took him in and he became kind of like the royal uh, lama of Bhutan, which he uh, still has that, that position. Mm. And, and he had quite a lot of students who were like, like Zongsar Kense Rinpoche and many, many other lamas have studied with him and would consider him their root guru, including the Dalai Lama. Mm. A Dalai Lama wouldn't consider him the root guru, but a very important teacher. Yeah. So let's circle back to getting real here a little bit. Yeah. And wow. uh, <laughs> I, I did notice uh, actually something that you wrote um, it was called Cutting the Chains of Karma, How to Change mm -hmm. Negative Habits in Five mm -hmm. Steps. It's really, really good because mm -hmm. I had not, it's interesting, I had not uh, read this before I put some notes together about what I want to talk to you about. And, yeah. and what, the first thing that I wanted to talk about in terms of getting real was the first thing in your, in this article, recognition. Mm -hmm. I put, Getting real, recognizing false motives, 
paying yourself lip service or paying lip service to the Dharma, basically. Uh, judgmental, uh, habitual tendencies. Uh, you, we were, we we're way on the same page, Dave. Um, mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about recognition. I think because many people sit, you know, and sit and do sure. the practice, and they you know, they start with you know, samatha and breathing and whatever they may do. Right. Sure. And uh, and that becomes the uh, raison d'être, as they say in French, rather than <laughs> the reason for being. The reason right. for doing meditation, rather than sure. uh, really getting at uh, and uncovering uh, the right. falseness that we uh, mm-hmm. that we live on on a day to day. So, yeah, let, to me, recognizing well, is very important. This is a big current topic for me because I am participating in the mindfulness revolution in my own way by, you know, working through that kind of. Um, uh, modality in terms of corporations and things like that. And, and for sure, the people want the stability, focus, and clarity that comes from the focusing on uh, the one pointedness of mindfulness meditation. Right. And for sure, that's a result of that practice. And it's, 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 you know, in all the texts, it talks about those three strengths, clarity, stability, and, and focus, um, uh, uh, clarity, stability, and strength. So in other words, your mind is developing a certain resilience or strength of being able to come back into the moment. So that's a really good start. There's no problem with that as a foundation. In fact, without that foundation, the process of discovery, the process of cultivating virtue, the process of developing, even you could go up to the level of developing cities and things like that, without stability and without some kind of grounded quality, none of that really has a good base. But what is missing so far in the mindfulness realm or that kind of movement is the second tier, which you're so accurately pointing to, is discovery. So what I'm talking about mostly these days is that there, the, if you're going to really talk about mindfulness and awareness in a complete way, it's stability and discovery. Those are the two pieces of it. It's not just stability. It's not just discovery. And once the stability of being grounded on your cushion is there, you're going to look at yourself. You're going to the whole idea is to, to begin to study, understand your own mind and how it functions in productive ways, what its nature is, what's, what the positive qualities of it are, what the inherent qualities of it are, and also what kind of sleazy habits we've developed over yeah. decades or yeah. lifetimes, however you want to look yeah. at it, which are based on avoiding oneself, avoiding reckon, reckoning with uh, uh, you know bad behavior and actions and uh, negative patterns of speech, all those things. So bullshitting ourselves right in there too. And, and others, you know, and, and, and others. Yeah. And it's so easy for us with that momentum to come into a spiritual practice and just incorporate it into that pr- process, which yeah. has been really well documented by Trung Parimbache cutting through spiritual materialism yeah. and spiritual bypassing and all those things. Mm. So even though there's no self, it's such a glib thing to say, in a sort of conventional point of view, a lot of the notions of, of who we are, are are based on kind of false ideas about who we are. There's still some individual aspect to existence, you know, and we're accountable. We, we, so I, in the teacher training program, I say the most important thing is self-assessing. You have to, the final frontier is self-deception of any spiritual path. You can fall in love with the teacher. You can fall in love with the teachings. You can talk a great game. You can write a million books, but at the end of the day, if you're not really going to the core of your own ob- obstacles and uh, and self-deception, you're gonna sooner or later you're gonna you know it's gonna show up in ways that you hadn't planned on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you if your lineage is good, they'll show up as protectors and they'll say you got to deal with this now. Yeah, uh, and yeah. you'll get this stuff shoved in your face by your inner guru, outer guru, teacher, whatever you want to call it, it's going to happen. And don't uh, forget the sangha. And the sangha, right. And Which, your husband and wife. Yeah. Your boyfriend and girlfriend. You know, so we talk about in Shambhala, we say cosmic mirror. You know, there's a mirror principle that the teacher represents uh, more than any kind of uh, kind of deliberate manipulation. It's, it's reflective. And... Um, but if you take that on and you go, if you're, you know, we talk about honesty and humil- humbleness and kind of softness and friendliness, gentleness, 
so it's hard to take that on. It's hard to see that way, that way into yourself. It's it's painful. Yeah. It's challenging. Yeah. Uh, and I think we should include here changing habits, uh, which mm. is one of the other things. And I talked about mm. habitual patterns. Mm. I mean, this is extraordinarily uh, a difficult aspect of our day-to-day lives. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so difficult. And we're going to talk a little bit about karma as, as we go on mm-hmm. here. Uh, but yeah, habitual patterns in the addressing of, of them in terms of our uh, getting real uh, premise and how do we attack them? How do we approach them rather than yeah. attack them? Well, the word attack is probably not going to work for most of us. Yeah. yeah. Well, you can see where, where I'm lost. <laughs> I'm going to attack that motherfucker. You know what I mean? Yeah. Th- and that could be a habitual pattern. That's, yeah, that is one. But, right. yeah, I'm like uh, Larry David, uh, his uh, sidekick, Leon. Go, oh, go get that motherfucker. You know, we're just going to get it, Larry. Get it right I'm, up I'm, in it. <laughs> I'm on a Curb Your Enthusiasm binge the last couple of days. Oh, I, my love, God. I love that show, man. Yeah. Because uh, it's so unabashed, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> so incorrect. Gone. Yeah. Um, so habits are, um, you know, uh, again, there's a number of ways of talking about these. Where are they is an interesting thing to contemplate right away. Where are the habits? What would you say? Where are the habits? Yeah. They, uh, in my experience, they exist in the deepest recesses of my um, molecular and uh, DNA structure that I can recognize whenever they flow out. Uh, you know, one thing that uh, practice has done, and particularly meditation over the many years, is the I've gotten good at maybe not fooling myself quite the same way that I used to, and I I, I see these these uh, demons as they mm-hmm. approach, and I recognize their uh, the starting points from which they mm-hmm. uh, came in in and it could be deep in the past or not so far, but mostly deep in the past because they're resoundingly familiar on a day-to-day basis so yeah well so for example there's a lot of interesting things in what you just said there's the emanation point where like where's the cave and when do they come to the mouth of the cave and come out of the cave and the notion of time because i would suggest it's impossible that they're in the past they can't be in the past um from that point of view there is no past they're they're existing now somewhere Otherwise, you couldn't experience it. And uh, even if the memory is appears to re- refer to a past event, it's still happening. It's triggering in, in the moment. So, yeah, but I do think it's it's it lives as a root, and that's present now. But it's okay. It so is where, easily where are they reckoned. now? Then where are they now? Well, they're thoughts. They're just all okay. thoughts. So huh? that's I, I'm gonna again uh, try to elaborate on that a little bit. Yes, they exist as thoughts or in the realm of mind. They also exist at the physical level, embodied level, like even somebody who's like been abused and they sit there like this, you know, yeah. it's, that's not a thought anymore. That's a body. And they exist in the emotional body or these are called a body, speech and mind or three kayas, Nirmanakaya, yeah. Sambhogakaya, Dharmakaya. So to uproot that, you have to go into all three levels of your existence Sometimes it means doing body work. Sometimes it means doing energy work. And sometimes it's in the mind realm. And, and, and usually all three. So it, it depends how deeply rooted it is. I mean, and that's why it's so hard to break. That's where addictions come from. They're so deeply rooted in the body level. Um, I'm trying to kick sugar lately. And I don't know if you heard this, but sugar is eight times more addictive than cocaine. Did you know that? <laughs> no, but I, I totally understand it. I didn't know that. but uh, And if, if anybody out there wants to understand habits, 95% of you are addicted to sugar. And and will just by trying not to have sugar, you'll you'll understand everything about habits by, 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 by encountering the space in which the habit arises, the craving arises, but the grasping is cut. So in Buddhism, we say that's if you want to cut karma, that's where you cut. Let the craving come up, see it, 
don't activate it, whether it's for aggression, you want to yell at somebody, you want to hit somebody, you want to, you know, make love to somebody, you want to eat something, don't do it. And just let the craving, uh, bring the recognition to the craving. And, and now you have to do that a lot of times because it's going to come up a lot of, there's a lot of seeds planted. So you have to be steady and vigilant if you want to break habits. Yeah. Um, but but the, the key element is recognition or awareness, and I guess the second element is some kind of will, some right. kind of intention. And that's, that gets us into a really uh, high wire act around yeah. will, especially yeah. for us in the West. And you know, right and, effort and it, is a whole other you know right. part of the eightfold path. Uh, it's funny, you know, you just said what you just said just triggered something in me that. I was. We were sitting with uh, Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba, and somebody asked about what to do with desires. Mm. And he, he said, it was a cup of tea. He said, you see this cup of tea? You want this tea? Don't drink it. Period. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, of course, renunciation in its most primitive and primordial way. Mm. You just don't do it. Yeah. You know. Well, now, and that's what he told Ramdas. You know, you're angry. He didn't go into a whole thing about, you know, moving with it and making friends yeah. with it or anything. Yeah. <laughs> Give it up. Give it up. Yeah. And that's coming from the a... non, you know, from the uh, non uh, dual, really. Well, we, is... we, in Buddhism, we would call that basic Hinayana teaching. Mm. That's, that's a basic renunciation. Like, you know, the, the monks take 250 vows. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to cheat. I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to have, you know, uh, kind of neurotic uh, sexual activity. You know, man, forget about it. Like you're, you're, you're signing your life away. And of course, in the, in the other yanas of Buddhist teachings, there's other ways to work with, um, with kleshas as they arise. And probably there is a kind of sophisticated way to transform them on the spot, but it's a lot easier to say than to do. Yeah. Oh, we That's should talk right. about that Yiddish word that uh, you Klesha? just mentioned. Yeah, it's a nice yeah. Yiddish word, klesha. <laughs> uh, and I, I like your, uh, I, I don't know where I saw it, but your interpretation, neurotic upheaval. Obscurations, of course, is, is, is the more yeah. classic, but neurotic upheaval, I think many of us could uh, yeah. relate. I think that. That's right from Trungpa Rinpoche, oh, yeah. neurotic upheaval. Yeah, he was uh, a, ma a linguistic uh, yeah. genius that way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Klesha, um, obviously, you know, is such an interesting idea that there's something blocking our basic goodness, our natural intelligence. Uh, there's some kind of obstacles. And, you know, here's basically, in, uh, and again, you know, I'm very uh, classically trained in Buddhism in a way. So, like, I like the you know the straight answers there they say that there's um uh two veils talk about reality there's two veils between you and reality that have to be lifted for you to experience reality properly so one is called conflicting emotions which is clashes you know it's energy of emotions but that's not harmonized not synchronized you're working against yourself you're jealous and you're angry at yourself for being jealous um, you, you know, it, it's a mountain of kind of conflicting uh, energies in the emotional realm. Right. Which, um, by the way, it's absolutely key. Everybody listening here, this has got to be one of the most intrinsic things for us to be aware of and uh, transform. Just, just exactly that—the conflicting emotion and and the building of, uh, on top one thing on top of the other to make it uh, very difficult to. Uh, be free of yeah it's kind of a fortress of shit <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly yeah you know you think you're being defended by it that's the big talk about you know not seeing it clearly this is making me safe this is making me great and, and it's this a is what i'm used to as well well yeah but you don't even have that level of insight about it you just feel like i'm this is making me powerful Mm. and and defended mm -hmm. everybody knows that you know and i guess in western terms you could call it defense mechanisms and things like that the other the other veil so you lift that veil um by seeing that as it is and kind of removing those filters the other veil is called primitive beliefs about reality 
which is a very interesting one. There are two primitive beliefs about reality. One is called nihilism and one's called eternalism. <laughs> so you and I and me and KD, we've had this conversation going on in Maui for probably years at this point um, because some people see the Buddhists as nihilistic and some people might see the bhaktis as eternalists, you know. Mm -hmm. And the middle way is that you don't, you kind of leave the coin on its edge, which is the kind of non-dual or, or um, you know, um, integrated approach. You don't solidify a sense of voidness or, ne you know, negative expanse. And you don't try to make eternity into some sort of like fixed thing mm -hmm. that you can then say, I'm, I'm comfortable, I'm secure. Right. Heaven will. Yeah. 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 Mm. So those those are the you know talk about getting real those two things they say is what keeps that's between you and real <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Uh, i'm going to refer back here to kensi rinpoche in past lives and in this life until now we have brought harm to others mm. countless times by uh -huh. lying to them cheating them, stealing from them, bringing ruin upon them, assaulting them, killing them, and all kinds of other wrongdoing. This accumulated negativity is what has kept us trapped in illusion, samsara, and it is now the chief hindrance to our progress on the path. It sustains the two kinds of obscuration, which we were just talking about, mm. which fall between us and the experience of the Buddha nature, <laughs> obscuration by emotions and obscuration of what can be known. But then he says, our situation is not completely hopeless, however. <laughs> we might have, after what you just said, we thought yeah. so. Right. As the mass, Kandampa masters used to say, the only good thing about wrongdoing is that it can be purified. Mm. Negative actions are compounded phenomena, so they must be impermanent. Therefore... As the Buddha said, there can be no fault so serious that it cannot be purified by the four powers. And, and there's wow. a long treatise around the four powers. But that just brings up to talk a little bit about, because one of the other things we've been talking to our friends about is, the, is, is getting at the wisdom of karma that we can, and you know, mm -hmm. I know your book, Awakening from uh, the Daydream, has so much richness in it uh, addressing this subject. But um, I, I, we, karma, uh, Robert Svoboda, do you know who Robert is? Yes. Robert wrote, yeah, the uh, Agora books. And, right. And so he talked about karma, uh, according to Krishna, karma is the Lord himself, you know. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, that uh, we had this wonderful conversation about it, and uh, I have been talking and trying to get a uh, a way in which we can enter into it, not just the classical understanding of cause and effect and so on, and uh, more about really recognizing the things that we do on a day-to-day -day basis that uh, the subtle levels of 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 our actions and what uh, what these actions and how they uh, can really come back, they do come back and haunt us. And the actions affect, uh, this is actually from Joseph Goldstein, I believe, actions affect both doers and those around them in unimaginable ways. And the seeds of karma shape our lives and our worlds through, uh, though different Buddhist traditions give different to weight to whether the action is willed or not. And we talked about that's a uh, toughie, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, in either case, through mindfulness, we become aware of the nature of these actions and, in fact, can change our karma. So talk a little bit about it from your point of view. Yeah, I mean, in a certain point, I think it's pretty easy to recognize karma as the whole game. Because if you posit the idea which almost everybody does that there's some kind of fundamental goodness and fundamental uh lightness of being and fundamental pure in 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 the buddhist tantric tradition they call it kadak or fundamental purity and that's the basis of the zogchen or ati teachings is that there never was a problem there's never going to be a problem there isn't a problem that the intrinsic reality is completely pure from beginningless time. And that's really a profound view. You, it's, you can say that, but you know, then you better be prepared to, yeah. <laughs> to take on all covers. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So short of that view, which is, you know, really 
deep kind of profound view. The more relative view is that, sure, that's true. And now it's also true that at a relative level, we've created all kinds of double backs, double takes, wraparounds, twists, you know, hallucinations, um, you know, uh, bad actions, you know, mistakes, uh, all at the relative level that need to be cleaned up. There's no way you can just leave that mess on the field and, and, and expect to have a happy life. I mean, so you begin to say, okay, how do I clean this up? And the simplest level is, I mean, Ken Rinpoche there is, that's just so astoundingly pure Dharma to me, the way mm -hmm. he's talking. That's mm -hmm. really Buddha Dharma. Like that's straight yeah. from the Buddha. That's really like what the Buddha said. That's really very pure. And, you know, you look and you say, um, well, let's say you're, you are used to lying. Let's just say, I mean, some of us have learned how to lie to avoid the truth and to avoid the pain of certain types of experience. And there's big lies and there's little lies. And, you know, at a certain point, like I have a chapter in the new book I'm writing called Lying, Cheating and Stealing Are Not Good for You or Anybody Else. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they don't create the benefit that you hope for. And um, now, does that mean you should blurt out to everybody, you know, I saw your you know, that you have huge underwear or, you know, you, 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 you eat like a slob or something like that. No, that's not what it means. But some kind of um, accountability uh, for not, for using speech and recognizing the sacredness of, of speech to express really clearly without obfuscation what it is you're trying to say to somebody. Without a game, without manipulation, just to really use as an opportunity to communicate. Right. You know, so when you go back through those same channels and try to put some kind of honesty into them or a naivete almost, simplicity, I think they clean, they clean out. And then you have to look, as you said, some of these things feel like they emanate from the past. So sometimes you have to go to the past and apologize to somebody if you treated them badly or lied to them you know, and uh, clean it up because you may have created ripples, you know, that you, that you need to take responsibility for. Yeah. And, uh, and this is from Robert Karma being so intricate, decent theories of karma are as difficult to objectively prove or disprove as is the theory of quantum mechanics. One practical <laughs> difficulty with testing either three is that cause and effect is only rarely linear. I love this. One mm. cause sometimes produce one effect, but far more commonly, a number of cooperating concomitant causes are mm. needed to produce a single effect, and a distant cause quickly spirals into a cascade cascade of interconnected effects. And that's just really getting at the subtlety that's of, right. of what we create, and, and having an awareness about that is supreme. And I like that, what you say, talking yeah. about honesty with yourself, too. And that's why in the new age world, they say, oh, you, you have cancer, so you must have had, you know, negative yeah. causes and effects. But you, they say only a Buddha can see all the causes and effects, that level of sight and vision. Yeah. So we don't know. We don't know what, what, what caused somebody to be born in a war zone or to somebody to, you know, have, have a very abusive or difficult life. So that's why... Our job, as far as I see it, is not to analyze the karma in a situation, but just to add compassion. That's all. Mm. Yeah. Just whatever deal. it is, however it got there, your job is not to like flip the blame on that person, but to figure out what you can do, if anything, to, to be helpful. And there's myriad ways in which we do this to ourselves, too. I mean, talk about blame and guilt. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. compassion is, a, a, is a, a great component. There's one last thing I want you to uh, comment on. Uh, and it's also from Dilgo Kensi. The more I read of Dilgo Kensi, I mean, I just, it's sort of like falling in love. Yeah, man. Uh, impulse is the compulsion to take action on the basis of your feelings of desire and aversion. It's all that one line <laughs> is enough. Thus, accumulating karma. Impulse is the compulsion to take action on the base of your feelings of desire and aversion, thus accumulating karma. Impulse is therefore the architect of samsara and nirvana. 
completely enslaved by impulse, you have been wandering from one life to the next since beginningless time. Uh, Yet if you realize that the nature of impulse is void and that your endless impulses are in truth the myriad facets of wisdom, you will no longer be subject to their domination. Gee, well, look, who translated that book? Uh, I, you know, I don't know. Um, I don't know. We'll have to find out, and then I'll let you know. <laughs> okay, because you. they did a good oh, job. Oh, translator's preface. Okay, but he didn't say his name. Uh, isn't that terrible? I'd have to read a little bit further in to, to figure that maybe, out, but I'll, I'll find it out. Could post it and give credit where credit's due because yeah. those are that's English, you know. You know, I'm teaching a lot in Japan, and it's like it's not easy to translate this stuff into another language. Yeah, you can, no, a lot no. of misunderstanding. Like the first word they used in English for glacia was defilements. It's so Christian, you know. Yeah, you're yeah. defiled. I mean, it's not sin. We don't we don't really believe in that kind of approach. So, um, but that's a really good translation. Whoever did that. Yeah, but impulse. Yeah, man. This I wonder what the word in Tibetan for impulse is. Because Kensei Rinpoche didn't speak English, unlike Trungpa Rinpoche, who wrote in English. Yeah. He made his own translation. So, yeah, impulse. Um, it makes you want to quit. Good dharma should make you want to quit. And then you realize you can't even kill yourself. That's not even possible, actually. <laughs> Trungpa Rinpoche used to say you can't even commit suicide. You mm. can't get out of it. Can. Mm. There's no escape, like Pema, you know, wisdom of no escape. Yeah, we have to address it because um, it's built that way. So that's an interesting idea. You know, you could take all the drugs in the world, you could kill yourself a million times, you could become a mass murderer. You cannot escape the prison of your own mind. Um, and and um, these guys nail you to it, man. They they have diamond nails and they nail you to it. Yeah. yeah. Well, but the the I think everybody can relate on the most um, in the most uh, practical way mm. that when we we circle all the way back to getting real, or Sharon's getting yeah. real, that the impulse, the uh, the compulsion to take action, that I mean, we sit with that. Yeah. recognize that talk about your you know how we came together you and i without knowing it around recognition the recognition of that impulse and mm. the compulsion i think is uh one of the most powerful ways in which we uh fool ourselves by not recognizing mm. that in within us that that just constantly is acting out on on desires and aversions and that's the original definition of mindfulness, by the way. Oh. It's it's smirti in Sanskrit, which is recognition, like sort of mm. recognizing. Um, and it's also a key to, to a very kind of simple but high-level practice. You just recognize uh, the, the, nat, you know, the natural state, and you also recognize what is arising, and then you, um, you don't hold on to it. You, you just let go. Yeah, <laughs> that's worth another forty podcasts. The letting go <laughs> pro- process, right? Yeah. Oh God. Well, and I just have one thing left to say about Sharon. I have to say it. Yeah. I, I think you didn't let her finish. She said, "Get real happiness. <laughs> Get real love." She was just doing an ad for her book. I see. Yes. Yes. No. I. I see- I right? said you you got no. It's the next book, getting real. You've had real <laughs> love, real happiness. Now just plain old getting real, Sharon. Yeah. So hey, from your from your mouth to her publisher's ear. Yeah. Right. That's not a bad title at all, by the way. No, not at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. But I'm just kidding, of course, because you know, um, I think I know what she was getting at. But she has used that phrase, get real happiness, real love. Right? Am I yeah. correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And in this case, she knew who she was talking to with our friend Duncan Trussell, <laughs> who uh, can go into, you know, right. extraordinary, uh, right. fantastical states of uh, 
skeptic paranoia, shall we say. Yeah. Yeah. And although a lot of that these days, even he will admit, is um, a little bit of a put on to uh, engage that character he's created because oh, things, wow. yeah, things have changed for him over the years. They really have. And well, he's admitted that. If you're in show business, you're only as good as your last hit. And a lot yeah. of people get caught up trying to reproduce it. So yeah, it doesn't. Well, he's got to be very. Yeah. 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 So uh, so she knew who she was dealing with, though. There, yeah. There was a core thing, you know, where he sure. it's exactly what he needed to hear. And is it ex it is exactly what I would say many of us listening and many of mm. us out there mm. and many people coming to your teacher trainings need mm. to 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 hear the practicality of dealing mm. and recognizing with those places in ourselves that, uh, you know, are those obscurations are. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the image is of Duncan in a helicopter and it's trying to take off and Sharon's just putting her foot down on the on the uh, the landing pad and just you yeah. can't take off, you know. Yeah, right. And, exactly. you know, we talk a lot about, you know, Buddha always is touching the earth, coming down, coming down. Mm. So a lot of people don't see spirituality that way. They're trying to ascend, you know, to some exactly. kind of level. Yeah. Exactly that. Yeah. That's a Wonderful. great, great. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Mr. Nickter, Mr. Nudger. <laughs> uh, so great to be with you as i say uh thank god i'm doing uh these mind rolling podcasts so i can get to hang out with you yeah. and sharon and joseph and Jan, all of our friends it's just uh, a joy it really is so. and it's it's great to talk to you you're, you've really gotten to be very good at this exchange well thank you it's, it's like you're refining the process of having this kind of dialogue and it's really super important for people yeah no it's because it's uh it's easy for people to just uh, put on the headphones and take a run or <laughs> weed the garden and, you know, you got it right there. Or some people say, wow, yeah, I listen at night and I'm asleep within two minutes. It's fantastic. <laughs> so I'm thinking of doing a sleep podcast. This, right. is, this well. is for if you want to go to sleep, listen well, to me. <laughs> how, how about the title of your next book, Wakeful Napping? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you could go for it. Yeah, my first book. Yeah, yeah. All right, great. Dave. Have thank a great so trip. Have okay, a great, great you, trip. Too. And I'm, yeah. I'm going to look forward to seeing you in Maui in May. Yeah. And, um, and again, thank you for being here on Mind Rolling. Go to beherenownetwork.com, and uh, all of Dave's book will be there. You can link to it, and his website, and uh, and Dilge, Dilgo Kensi rather Rinpoche. We'll have his books and uh, and uh, link to uh, what's the name of the movie, Dave? Uh, Brilliant, Brilliant Moon, Moon. Which, yeah. which is his Dharma name in English. Uh huh. Really. And if you see the scene on the beach, the guy, the, the guy in the suit with the beard and the long hair is me. <laughs> yeah, I, I bought it. I'm going to go look at that. Yeah, yeah. I got to see that. Okay. <laughs> All right. But that's not why you, you know. You'll yeah, see no, when I, you see the movie why we're in love with why both of us are in love with him. It's yeah, really, really it's really good. Thank you for reminding me about him. Oh, absolutely. A Good joy. Yeah. Thanks. See you, everybody, next week on Mind Rolling. 